With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money and investing the economy and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 26. It's titled, Why Is the Stock Market Falling? The subtitle of the episode is, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. Yes, in this episode, I'll answer why the markets are falling, why interest rates, to some extent, are plunging, at least in the U.S., to some extent in Europe. And that's what we'll discuss. But before that, let me tell you or share an experience where I really learned the power of story. Because we'll see in a few minutes that it's really the stories that we're telling ourselves and the lead story that's driving the market is starting to change. I used to run beauty pageants for money managers. Now, it wasn't a traditional beauty pageant. In the institutional investment world, we called them finals presentations. And so I would have an institutional client, such as a college endowment. They would have an investment committee, and they would want to, based on a recommendation, to be, let's say, allocating to a new asset type, say, emerging markets. And as part of that process, they would want to hire an outside manager to manage those assets. And and oftentimes, this could be a $10 million or more assignment, often more. And as part of that, we would bring in three or four managers to present for 30 minutes to the client. And the manager would would usually have some type of presentation booklet that everybody would have. Usually there'd be one or two representatives of the firm there. And they would go through and outline how they managed money, the history of the firm, the culture. Essentially, they would tell a 30-minute story, a true story, but it was really a story. Now, now, why do I call it a story? Well, and why do I call it a, a beauty pageant? We would prepare information for the client, and, and they would already have all kinds of information on these managers. They, and we would have vetted them via our research group. So we would have done the due diligence. We would have visited on site. And so these were four of our recommended firms. And and to some extent, from from our standpoint, we were sort of indifferent as to which firm the client chose because we had confidence in all of them. So the managers would present one by one, and typically just kind of a setup, there'd be maybe 10 to 12 board members in the room. There'd be some staff members from the college. The two managers representing each firm would be at the front, at the head of the table, and everyone would have their presentation books, and then they would begin for 30 minutes. What I found fascinating about this process is because it was, it was a perfect laboratory to, to experience group decision-making and to watch, to some extent, oftentimes group think would take hold, but just sort of the interaction. Because after the managers would present, 
all three or four, then the committee would decide what they liked about each one. What I found, though, is invariably the firm that got hired was whoever was the best presenter. It came down to poise. It came down to confidence. It came down to storytelling ability. And sometimes it came down to looks. And and you would say, how can you make a decision based on those things? But the reality is we, we gravitate toward those intangibles, toward those stories. And what I want to outline today is how the financial markets are also driven by stories. And when the stories change or begin to change, that can lead to volatility until a new story comes about. There is a quote, there's a book that I, I recommend. It's by Daniel Kahneman, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And Daniel Kahneman, for many years, was a researcher in behavioral economics and just, just how the brain functions and, and our thought processes and has done many, many experiments over the years. Here's his quote with how we deal with uncertainty and limited information. You cannot help dealing with the limited information you have as if it were all there is to know. You build the best possible story from the information available to you. And if it is a good story, you believe it. Paradoxically, it is easier to construct a coherent story when you know little, when there are fewer pieces to fit into the puzzle. Our comforting conviction that the world makes sense rests on a secure foundation, our almost unlimited ability to ignore ignorance. The core of the illusion is that we believe we understand the past, which implies that the future also should be knowable. But in fact, we understand the past less than when we believe we do. We tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories because we have incomplete information. In the investment world, and we, we, I've talked about this in the past episodes, the world is getting more risky. As an example, how I invest without a map. Financial markets are very, very complex. So many moving pieces. And ignorance is abundant because we don't know what's going to happen. And as a result, storytelling is very much cherished in the financial world. The financial media, financial strategists, gurus are paid handsomely to tell us plausible stories about what is happening in the markets and why and what will happen next. We ask them to connect the dots. If you read an article in Bloomberg, so many of their stories are an explaining the market failed today because we want to know why things are happening. Why are so many stock markets today 10% below where they were even a few weeks ago? Why has oil prices fallen 25% since July? Tell us. We want to know the reason. We use stories as a way to both to guide our own financial decision-making and to rationalize our choices. We can't avoid it. I tell myself stories. I, I have some investments in my portfolio right now that an example is master limited partnerships. I have a very high conviction in these investments, yet there were times this week where they fell four or 5% in a day. And, And 
And then, so I go out and I, I research, go out to my network and, and, and find out what, what's going on. Tell me the story of what's happening because I don't understand this. That's normal in, in this environment. Everyone tells themselves stories, but invariably there are some stories that become more popular. And these are what I call the leading stories, the leading narratives, what is driving the financial markets. And since 2011, well, let me step back. 2008, 2009, complete chaos, complete fear. And in the call for governments was to step in and use massive stimulus packages to support the economy and and take unprecedented measures. And governments and central banks did that. Then the recovery occurred, and by early 2010, the, the story changed. Throughout all that time, European Union hadn't really changed. They still had, the structure was the same. They still, many of the countries were running huge deficits, and, but interest rates were very, very low. And then suddenly the story changed, and the lead narrative changed to where investors became more worried about the European Union and whether it would stick together. And so rates shot up dramatically. And, and this, this continued through the first half of 2011. And it's not that anything had changed from 2009 to 2010. The only thing that changed was the leading narrative. The story changed. Volatility came back into the market. This was during the debt ceiling crisis in the U.S., so there was, there was a focus on government structure, government finances, and the market reflected it. Then Mario Draghi, the new head of the central bank in Europe, European Central Bank, said he would do, and the central bank would do whatever it takes to save the European Union, to keep the economy on track, and, and from that point on, going into the fall 2011, markets have rebounded. And the leading story has been economies are growing, the, the stock market is going up, it has been modest economic growth, and central banks would do everything they can to continue to support that growth. And one of the phrases out there in that story narrative was buy the dip, BTD. Whenever markets would swoon and sell off a little bit, clarion call was go out and put more money in the stock market. And it was a strategy that was handsomely rewarded if you bought the dip. Now the story appears to be changing the lead narrative. We don't know what that will be. And it, because nobody, there's not a situation where there's somebody up above telling the story. It's Stories, popular stories, come up from the bottom. Everyone tells themselves stories, but there eventually becomes a story that, based on investor fear, based on investor greed, based on what investors feel comfortable with, that becomes the most popular story. And there can be more than one leading narrative, but invariably, because markets are made up of humans, and humans are irrational, and humans love stories, and because of the unknown, they gravitate to these stories. And there can be significant volatility 
until a new leading narrative emerges. And what's unknown is what will the level of stocks be or bonds be when, in terms of interest rates when the new leading narrative takes hold. In the meantime, there's very, very volatility. Now, we can't invest based on story. We tell ourselves stories, but we need to recognize that. The way that I invest is not to recognize nobody has a clue what's going to happen next. Nobody, even the smartest hedge funds in the world, they don't know. They tell themselves stories to suggest that they do know, but they don't. What we have with a complex system, just as we listened, learned in episode 15 on the world is well, I forget what I call it. Episode 15, where we talked about complex adaptive systems where, oh, it was stop worrying about the next market crash, where it's like a sand pile. You drop one kernel, one grain of sand at a time. Eventually, you get an avalanche. Nobody knows what when that will occur. And so the assumption is the next grain of sand won't cause an avalanche. With But with weather... Weather is also a complex adaptive system. We don't know, just as occurred in my Idaho town, where there is a thunderstorm would come up that it would drop 15% of our annual rainfall in a matter of hours and cause massive flooding. But what we do have is we knew the conditions are ripe for thunderstorms on that particular day. And that's what we have with, with financial markets. We can look at the conditions just as you, if you go out sailing on a lake, you want to know what the weather conditions are going to be. You can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but we can at least look at the conditions. What are the conditions today? The conditions that I focus on most often are what are valuations? Is the market cheap? Is the market expensive? Two, I look at the, the economy, is the economy growing or is the condition suggesting a recession is plausible in the near future? And I also, third condition is what is the sentiment? What is the level of fear and greed? What is, it, what is the momentum aspect to the market? Are most stocks going up? Are most stocks going down? And is there a change in that momentum? So let's look at those conditions Today, first off, let's look at valuations. Valuations for most markets are above average. If you look at the global stock market, and one measure of valuation, I've had a number of emails saying, "Let's give us some examples of valuations." I look at something called earnings yield, and earnings yield takes a a particular indice or a particular country and look at the collective earnings that make up their stock market and divides it by the collective price, so earnings yield. It's, it's actually the inverse of the price-earnings ratio. Price-earnings ratio of PE is the price divided by earnings. Earnings yield is earnings divided by the price. And I like to look at it as a yield because then you can kind of compare that yield to what interest rates are, which is also a yield. So globally, if we look at the entire globe, the earnings yield is, is below average. So the lower the yield, the, the pricier the market, which makes sense because you're dividing a set amount of earnings into a higher price stock market. And so you want a very, very high earnings yield. The highest earning yields in the world right now is in Russia. 
about 18. And, and, and we know why, you know, some of, some of their challenge, I'm not saying go invest in the Russian stock market, but it is one of the cheapest markets in the world. Second cheapest market would be China, which has an earnings yield of about 10. And I talked about China in episode 17 and why, why I have an investment in China. But globally, the stock market on a valuation basis is above average. That's not in our favor, but that's the condition. We recognize that particularly it's in U.S., in the Europe, in Europe, the stock market valuations are above average, meaning the earnings yields are, are below average. So that's a risk, and that's a condition. Emerging markets, including Russia and China, the earnings yields are above average, and so those markets are cheaper. Yet those markets are also trying to find a new, a new story, a new leading narrative. Is the, the growth miracle that they've occurred is that changing? Because are they, are they, they've had slower economic growth the last few years. So that's condition number one. Valuations in the world, in, in the globe, are above average, and that's a risk. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you're running a new or existing business, I can't think of a better partner than Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch of your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the do we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling shipping supplies or clothing. They can help you sell everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform, as well as their in-person POS system. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. When I order from an online shop and see that they're using Shopify, that gives me a great deal of confidence my order will be correct and arrive in a timely manner. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including Allbirds and Brooklinen and entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash David, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash David now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash David. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. 
Second area in terms of conditions is, is are we heading toward a recession? And in episode seven, I talked about this concept of purchaser, purchasers, managers, indices, or PMIs. And these surveys that are done across the globe indicating what people, particularly businesses, felt the economy was doing. And there's, there's manufacturing PMIs and there's services PMIs. And, and they're done in every country. Globally, the PMI for beginning, I guess it would be for as of the beginning of the month of October, it was 52.2. Generally speaking, a PMI above 50 suggests growth is continuing. Below 50 suggests that growth is slowing and, and a recession risk is higher. So global PMI right now is 52.2. So to continue with that story of modest growth. Yet the Eurozone is down to 50.5. So just on the cusp of a potential recession. And the recession risk in Europe is now almost uh, 50 to 60%. And and so there there is definite headwinds in Europe. And that's one reason why oil prices have fallen 20%. Because slower demand or less demand, and supply is increasing, particularly in the U.S. So that's PMI in Europe. PMI in the U.S. is 56.6, suggesting growth is continuing. But across the globe, in the month of October, more PMIs dropped. And so the there appeared potentially is a slowing economy or even a recession. It's, it's not greater than 50% risk right now. It's probably close to a 50% risk. Why is that important? Because during recessions, if there's a bear market or a decline, the average loss is about 40 to 45% across the globe. And that's significant. That's an extreme event. In a non-recessionary environment, if there's a bear market, the typical loss is about 20%, so half that. So it's important to recognize, are the conditions suggesting a recession is imminent or are we heading in that direction? And the answer is no, not yet. But there are areas where the risks are, are much more elevated than they were a few months ago, Europe being an example of that. What about other conditions? What about the level of fear and greed? And this is where I'm most positive. The riskiest time for the stock market is when investors are exuberant and they're excited and they think everything is, is A-OK. And, and so when they're exuberant, that's not where we are right now. Investors across the globe are very, very pessimistic, as pessimistic as they've been this year. And, and that's actually, that's a positive. It, if, things settle down a little bit, that net negative sentiment usually leads to a rebound in the stock market. Except when it doesn't, because <laughs> if the narrative changes so dramatically, there, there's always fear in the stock market as the market sells off and continues to sell off. And so the key is, is to wait for sentiment to get to an extreme and then and then reverse and and there's some indicators that that I look at for that that I'll have to share with you at at some point and I haven't figured out exactly how to do that whether to do a newsletter or something to give you a better indication of some of the things I'm looking at but 
that this fearful sentiment is actually a positive for the market. Less positive is the is the momentum built into the market. In other words, one one what thing I look at is the volume. So trading volume, how many trades shares of stocks are trading per day? To what extent is the volume of stocks that were down? How does that compare to the volume of stocks that were up that day? And you can kind of look over a, a 10-day average. And in a typical bull market, the volume, the ferocity with which investors are buying stocks that are going up is higher than the volume of the stocks going down. That's That has started to reverse to where the volume of each is about the same. And on some days, the volume of stocks going down was greater than the volumes of stocks going up. That's actually a negative for the market because in most bear markets, the volume, the, the ferocity with it, the ferocity with which investors are trying to get out of the market is very, very high. I mean, there's always one buyer per seller. There's always a meeting of the minds in the stock market. But if if there's more, if the stocks, if there's a greater demand for stocks that the people want to sell, that pushes down the price and, and the volume of the stocks going down is also higher than the volume of the stocks going up. So that's a negative for the market. The the Overall momentum of the market in terms of a breadth, in terms of what percentage of stocks appear to be rolling over and going down is increasing. That's also a negative. The other condition, though, is seasonality. Generally, the May to October time frame is, is not a great time for investing, whereas the latter part of November, December tends to be quite favorable for markets. And so... I'm not – I'm actually kind of excited right now because finally there's some areas in the market that are getting more attractive. In episode 17, I talked about our investors complacent and, and I discussed the risk in the non-investment grade bond market in terms of junk bonds and how overall rates had gotten very, very low and the spread or incremental yield you got for investing in – non-investment grade bonds had been very, very narrow. Now, in the last three to four weeks, the yield on non-investment grade bonds is now back over 6%. And the spread or the differential between non-investment grade bonds and government bonds, at least in the US, is is as wide as it's been in the in a year, particularly today when the bond rates for government bonds have dropped to, well, in terms of the 10-year treasury, just about 2%. The 30-year Treasury bond is now under 3%. In episode 22, we talked about, will interest rates increase? My feeling at the time was not likely given how U.S. interest rates were so much higher than Europe. Now, that, I guess, to some extent, that was a prediction, but that was a story I was telling myself. Steve Luthold is is a market strategist, one of the few that I listened to and actually would pay for his service at my old firm. He always had a saying where predictions are for show, numbers are for dough. And by numbers, he meant what are the conditions. He would make predictions. We tell ourselves stories, what we think is going to happen, but I'd rather make decisions based on what are the conditions and risk manage based on that. With the stock market pricey in most areas of the globe, that's a risk. With the investors very, very fearful, 
That's a positive. With the economy continuing to grow across the globe, not yet in a recession, that's a positive. But if it tips over and where PMIs get below 50, that's definitely a risk. And you kind of have to weigh all these things, and that's what it means to invest without a map. You look at the conditions, you make a decision, ideally move in the areas that are attractive, and non-investment-grade bonds are getting there. Perhaps once we hit bottom extreme, once that new narrative takes place and we settle, then then markets will get less volatile. And and that's that's the way markets work. There are pockets of volatility happen. It happens in clumps. Irrespective of emerging markets hypothesis, modern portfolio theory that says that's not the way it's supposed to be if you listen to episode 20. But the reality is markets are clumpy. Volatility happens in periods. And that's mostly because the, the leading narrative is changing and investors are trying to figure out what new story they want to believe in. Now, what if you're a buy and hold investor? In other words, you're, which is a perfectly legitimate way to invest if you can hold on to that roller coaster when it's heading down the steep incline like we are today. And I want to share with you an experience I had in 2008 to, to indicate here's the level of conviction you need to have as a buy and hold investor. During October of 2008, right after Lehman had failed, markets were plummeting along the globe, across the globe. I went, flew to New York with one of our analysts at our firm that covered value managers. And Christy and I went to one of the firms we visited was Pazina and met with the team there. Rick Pazina runs the firm. And mainly just to get their view of the market, but just this was a firm to some extent under crisis. Their their portfolios were down 40%. They had overweighted banks because banks were cheap and banks continued to fall dramatically. Not only that, but Pazina itself had done an IPO for their firm, an initial public offering. They were now publicly traded. The stock, the the IPO was September 2007. I'm there a year later. The stock has fallen from 20 down to 5. By February of 2009, the stock would have fallen to $2, a 90% decline. So these managers at Pacina, their net worth had plummeted. Their portfolios were down 40 to 50%. We go to meet with, with this, the team. We, we sat in a research meeting, and then we met, met with Rick Pazina individually. I have never seen an investor with, with such conviction. He was, he was even looking, if I recall correctly, to go out and borrow money to go buy his stock, which was in the 3 to $4 range the stock for the Pazina Investment Management. They were holding their positions and and they had they had a, they knew their holdings well. They felt the market was overcorrecting and they were going to hold on. And and that's the level of conviction you need if you're a buy and hold investor. You you, you have to you have to ride out these storms, the ups and downs. And 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 I I've told you I I, I can't do that. 
I, I'm just not I'm just not wired that way. And, and so I am adjusting my portfolio. I mean, there's holdings I'll hold for years. On the other hand, I prefer to to make changes based on the conditions as an outline. Those are two viable ways to to invest. So how did the Pazina story end? Well, their portfolios came back. Their stock now is trading close to 10. They continue to attract clients. I think they manage $28 billion now. And so that story had a happy ending. We need to decide what type of investors are. Are we, are we buy and hold, having conviction like Pazina, or do we want to adjust our portfolios based on market conditions based on opportunities. That's episode 26. You can reach me with questions, jd at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guides, have those show notes emailed to you on a weekly basis, along with questions that I answer from listeners and readers and share things that are not to share on the podcast. Everything on this episode I've shared with you is for general education only. I have not provided investment advice. I've not continued your specific risk situation. Purely general education on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. Next week, episode 27.